Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Since Sagar and I are coming off of two weeks of live events, today's episode is going to be a crossover with the Moment of Zen podcast, a new show that discusses everything happening in technology, business, politics, and beyond. Mono Zen is hosted by two previous realignment guests, Eric Torenberg and Antonio Garcia Martinez. Of course, there's also the third host who we've not had the pleasure of speaking with yet on the show, Dan Romero. This conversation was a real blast. It's always fun to have a kind of intersection between tech, media, and politics. If you enjoy this conversation, you should check out the video on their YouTube page and the other interviews they've recorded lately. Hope you all enjoyed this episode, and we'll be back with a Q&A tomorrow and the regular interview schedule after that. Welcome to another episode of Moment of Zen. Uh, we're lucky to have Sagar and Marshall of The Realignment as our special guests. Uh, Sagar and Marshall, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having us, guys. Yeah, this is great. Sagar Marshall, you guys have the best show uh, as it relates to uh, the intersection of politics, media, tech. You guys are very influential. In fact, I heard that you were on the planning committee for the most recent Martin Luther King statue. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, we were both personally consulted. <laughs> what, um, what was the inspiration behind that 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 kind of aesthetic decision? I mean, you know, the- Cleaning the, the libs, apparently. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. If you wanted to single-handedly actually hurt MLK's legacy, uh, that probably was the best way to do it. <laughs> or to remind people of his marriage. You know, there's a lot of questions, interesting stuff that's come out. Your show is called The Realignment. Today, we're going to be talking about the future of the right and the future of the left. Um, let's first talk about where we are now and a little bit of where, where we've been. To the extent that there's been a realignment of the parties, that the, the right is now the party of the, of the working class and the left is now the party of the elites. Uh, talk about, to, to the extent that's true, how is that true and how, how did that come to be? It's interesting. I really, I hate that framing. This is someone who's been doing this for three or four years, just because I don't like frames that confuse more than reveal. So for example, Rick Scott, when he was chairing the Senate Republican uh, Senatorial Campaign Committee last year, his big whole thing was that he wanted to cut Social Security and entitlements. That was the big policy. Uh, Obama gave one of his good old-time vintage 2008 speeches saying, like, that's crazy, we shouldn't do this. This is against what Democrats want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So given that context, saying the Democrats are the parties of the elites kind of like, I think misinterprets the way that the actual economic policy looks. But like that said, Democrats are increasing the saga that you pick up here, like the party of like the professional managerial class and the like upper middle class very specifically in a way it's kind of interesting because guess what? In the 80s, Ronald Reagan won college graduates. So that's just a total realignment for how politics used to work. 40 years ago. Yeah, the real flipping. And this is why elites and working class is really difficult, right? Because if you're a plumber and you make $155,000 a year, are you working class? Uh, while if you were a professional managerial, like let's say HR executive and you make 55, are you an elite? Well, actually, kind of. Uh, the thing is, is that the way that it codes uh, isn't always the best. So I think that the best, uh, and look, there's a lot of data to back this up from 2016 and actually got worse during 2020. It was education polarization. Do you have a four-year college degree or not? If you did, vast majority of the time that you voted for the Democratic Party, uh, also very likely that you share different cultural sensibilities. You're going to live in a more urban environment. You're not going to have 
as much, you know, social, family, religiosity, all these other things. So that's why it's, I, I actually think uh, the four-year college degree is the way that I talk about it. And I look at it much more of a question of education polarization and all the attendant, you know, uh, downstream effects of that. Politics just being one of them, right? Because I, I think that's that politics is downstream of that in how it affects our city planning in terms of, you know, what, what type of movies you watch. This is all very like almost retrodden Charles Murray type ground. But like, do you watch CSIS or are you going to watch White Lotus? You know, it's like these are all the... These are like the real, uh, uh, the real divides, and that actually affects how you vote. And to interrupt, Sagar, I have to illustrate how much you are on that segment by you referring to Navy and CIS as CSIS. Oh yeah, DC oh, I'm sorry. Foreign policy thing. NCIS. You have, you have revealed yeah. to the crew. You're right. Your loyalty yeah. lie. I don't watch NCIS. <laughs> I know it's the most watched show in the. Uh, the guy is a fucking star, actually. The <laughs> he's like one of the highest paid people on TV. I couldn't, I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. I don't even know who he is. <laughs> The Wall Street Journal actually has a um, uh, a great overview of this. And, and Eric, we should put it in the show notes where they just talk about the polarized presidential election compared to 1980 versus 2020. And they actually show the 2000, so the kind of 40 years and how it shifted. And they have these like nice infographics. But I think they talk about college degrees. It was it was like Republican majority in 1980. And, and obviously now it's, it's way more Democrat household income. Republicans used to be the high income counties that voted for presidential election. Now it's their middle income, but realistically, they're much lower income. Uh, religiosity is another thing. I think it's like it's like seventy percent of Democrats don't don't go to any type of religious service, whereas like fifty percent of Republicans at least done something. And then gun ownership is another one. And I, I went through this before because I knew we were going to yeah. talk about this, but it's kind of mind blowing to think of like the the stereotype of a Republican is a rich person. <laughs> and the reality is like, yeah, maybe at the, the extreme end or the entrepreneur class of, of like people who are small business owners, you know, you should go back to that plumber or maybe you're a plumber and you own uh, a plumbing business that has five plumbers working for you. You're probably voting Republican. 100%. Yeah. But but if you're either kind of a laborer, like down, down the spectrum, or to your point, you're a very overqualified, you know, HR professional. Uh, who went to some elite liberal arts school and and kind of is is there to kind of be I don't know a hall monitor at a company like that you're you're voting Democrat right because yeah. you are all about the virtue signaling and, and whatever policies you care about you, yeah, but but you think of yourself as from a class standpoint um, as both high class relative to the the MAGA Republican voter but at the same time the the kind of like economic milieu that you're in is like actually most of the people in your income level are voting Republican outside of you know people in cities. Yeah, and I, I think I'm I'm restating my title at Spindle as overqualified HR professional because that's frankly <laughs> what I feel like. I'm actually the most poorly paid person at this company. It turns out, and um, that's that's great. I'm going to do a, a P marker and put that on my profile mysteriously as a subtweet. I like that. I mean, I think this is important to pick up on though because it also gets to like the intra class tensions. You know, what you're talking about, Dan, is what motivates a lot of the student loan debt conversation. And uh, look, you know, I'm 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 sympathetic. You know, certainly uh, to that discussion. And I almost like to think, I mean, obviously that's what I, kind of what Marshall and I like to do uh, is look at how that translates across everyone because there's like intra-class, like just general malaise feeling, both working upper middle and whether you have the four-year college degree or not of, look, the degree, I mean, it used to pan out for those people and now it's not. And then also you could say for the people who are at the downwardly mobile part of the spectrum, if you were to look at wage uh, wage growth and uh for in terms of like what they could expect, they kind of feel the same thing. It's just in the policy priority that gets articulated 
as to what's most important to those constituencies, that's what comes out, I think, in the parties. Hence why student loan debt was one of the one things that was forced through from the quote unquote professional, but like the Elizabeth Warren type left onto Joe Biden. It didn't end up coding with Trump. And that's kind of one of something I think is important too. And it gets to what Marshall said. Even if the Republican Party is going to have a vast majority of people who are not small business owners, they as a constituency are the most powerful. I think for a couple of reasons, like number one is I believe small business owners behind the military and there's like one or two other institutions are third or fourth most respected institutions in the entire country in terms of small business. Americans like 75% love small business. So they have a lot of cultural cachet. And two, I think they're also like very politically active. And also, uh, I don't know exactly what it is, Marshall. I'm curious what you think. Why they have such a hold on Republican policy priority, uh, almost in a similar way to, I would say, the cultural left is with the Democrats. Yeah, and the way you should think about this is, what were the big Republican like attempts or accomplishments in 2017 when Trump comes around? Yeah, it's cut. a, a right. big tax cut and an attempt to overturn Obamacare. So just like, once again, we kind of see this. Uh, I'm curious what you guys think about this, because now that it's getting a little cooler to be a little more like right wing um, in certain aspects of like tech Twitter, there's this very sort of like, very like, there's a lot of class warriors coming out of like right wing tech Twitter now. It's sort of like, yeah, like that annoying HR professional who like, once again, is definitely annoying. I'm not going to like fact check that part. It turns out that they're the ones that are out of touch and like, we're the ones who are like in with it. I think that easy dunk kind of misses like the big debates we're about to have. So for example, Trump just like put out, hey, Republicans with this debt ceiling stuff, don't use austerity to cut social security and entitlement programs. That was a huge debate Trump had with Republicans during the 2015 primary. So the real test that we're going to basically see over the next two years, and it's unclear Ron DeSantis is on this debate is, is the Republican Party going to have a quote unquote like working class base, which I think Rick Scott could claim that. I think Trump could both claim that. But the question is, where is the agenda going to go? Because what you could do is say, guys, like CRT, it's crazy. The social issues are crazy. Crime is out of control. You could get a lot of working class votes that way. But if you don't have to deliver economically, I think that's going to be a huge problem and will basically restart the Trump cycle all over again. But isn't this also the reveal preference of, you know, when Trump gets into office, you have a Republican majority. And they, how many times did they vote to repeal Obamacare when they were kind of out of power? Oh, then it, so then it comes Surely in, yes. and then it's like turns out it's like actually the the percentage of people who are on disability that is like funded by all these kind of like entitlement programs in Republican counties, like they, they can't get rid of the, these benefits. Okay. So it's like a lot of virtue signaling on that side, where it, it's like ultimately th those those programs it, it's easy to rail on because they're they're liberal programs, but the reality is the constituents are just as uh, red voting as as you know anything, if not more. Well, that's the eternal conundrum for the GOP and like what exactly they do. I would posit, and actually I, there's a lot of data to back this up. Uh, this is stolen from Matt Iglesias, uh, not my original point, but I do <laughs> like it. The lowest approval rating for Donald Trump's presidency was not Charlottesville. It was not January 6th. It was the day that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act actually passed. Wow. Um, and to the extent that uh, Trump is able to win back or keep on working class votes, it's largely because of cultural effect of the Democratic Party. And Look, I just think that's the eternal war going on. A lot of the debt ceiling fight, I mean, look at Trump. Trump is not, literally not on the side of the debt ceiling Tea Party warriors at all. There's also no indication that they give a shit or that they care. Uh, there is, in fact, I mean, he's the one who told them to vote for Kevin McCarthy over and over again. And they're like, no, we're not doing it until we get our austerity uh, triggers that are put into any sort 
of speakership. Ross Douthat also wrote that column, uh, The Return of the Pre-Trump GOP. I think it was absolutely spot on. Um, and in a lot of ways, we're basically right back where we started in 2014, except that Trump, Trump is, if anything, he's the glue that holds it all together. He's the guy who could both pass the TCJA, but also talk about, um, he could talk, you know, cultural issues and hammer that home. He can win an election, but he's also not, he, he has a good sense, I think, of not going too far up on the line and not abandoning it too much. Whereas a lot of the economic libertarians within the party, they were pretty upset with Trump, but were willing to fight with him on a lot of cultural ground. Also, because they were able to get a lot of their policy priorities through when he wasn't looking, thinking about people like Jim Jordan uh -huh. um, and others who blocked actually a lot of Trump initiatives uh, while he was in Congress. So it's just weird. Like, I, you know, it's it, it's a mess. That's the only way I would put it. Uh, well, just one thing I'll just build on there, Sagar, is basically that the real test over the next two years is that it's easy to say from 2015 to 2020 that you're like the party of the working class when like interest rates are good. Yes. Good the part. feds, yeah. everything's going well. Like the economy's growing. Like there's just like no austerity. You can wage the culture war on the right and you could be very like profligate if you're spending. You could sign the $2,000 checks like on and on and on and on. For the next two years, you're going to have a lot of folks, Ted Cruz, I don't think this is going to be a Josh Hawley issue as much, but there are just going to be a lot of folks who like really embraced the like we're working class party now thing. It's going to be hard to keep it up as much because there actually is going to have to be a choice they're going to have to make. Uh -huh. I uh, I want to address Mar Marshall's question earlier about why in, in tech Twitter and just tech in general, are you seeing more of the kind of embrace of, of the, uh, sort of uh, sort of the right wing as working class um, the politics? I, I think it's because in the last decade, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs and, and people in tech have, have been lectured about how the, how they're the problem, how how we're the problem in in all sorts of ways that that have not just been annoying but also destructive to our companies. Okay. And um, all of a sudden, uh, this is a way to seize the moral high ground, uh, or at least uh, you know remove it. Uh, you know, at least instead of where the enemy actually may, maybe you're the enemy. Maybe you're doing the, the the wrong thing. And so part of it is is perhaps just practical. Um, you know, way, way to fight back so that the hall monitors can can stop destroying these companies for <laughs> man my quick thing i remember there was a debate on twitter what you guys were going to name this podcast seeing eric say we're the problem and looking your three faces i wish that was the name of the podcast i would have been good that's we're like the that. problem <laughs> antonio dan eric like let's just get to the core of it that's yeah. my that's my instant reaction what, white curious. hispanics uh yeah. no we're we're, we're if you're, if you're we're a latinx Democrat that Florida, don't don't follow what latinx yes. is supposed to do yeah. What do you guys think is going to happen? Let's say if there's like, so tech seems very comfortable with Ron DeSantis, but what is going to happen, let's say, uh, if Trump wins the primary? Do you think like this new vein of like tech rightism, uh, probably no, I don't know, tech anti-cultural left, let's put it that way. I think, I, I probably, think that's a pretty skewed version of Twitter. I think tech is still very, very no, no, no. I, okay, so let's say you know the, in the in the slice that I think that we all inhabit. Uh, let's not overstate it, but it is something. You know, more overstated certainly than 2017. Like, how do they grapple like with the possible return to try, especially uh, a like a full Trump? You know, like stop the steal. There's no economic, <laughs> just full Q. Um, I mean, I know how the voters will will go, but like, how do the the tech elites who are skeptical i would say of the gavin newsom and the kamala harris and even of joe biden like certainly like how, how do you think they'll handle it? what do you I guys think we should get antonio in on this but i would say yeah. i think it's a zero interest rate phenomenon so uh, now that you know google just laid off five, six percent yes. of their workforce today and you kind of saw the wailing of entitled employees who didn't get their smoothie before they got fired i think 
that that is going to have a big difference regardless of whatever candidate uh-huh. people are actually looking at the economy and saying okay i want to make sure i keep my job yeah i don't know i i wouldn't ponder Sagar, you've been standing trump here which is i it's a shocking thing i i, I was just looked up the predicted fakes he's still running number three actually behind biden and desantis I, I don't think Trump holds it together, actually. I think the new right, the new right yeah. is, is past Trump. Uh, you need to go to NatCon more, I think. Is what's <laughs> which is maybe, I right, uh, right. see my opinion. That's this national conservative conference where DeSantis basically gave his like campaign stump speech in October in Palm Beach. Um, I, I think it's very different. I think the new right is different. I think a lot of it is religious LARPing, to be clear. And yes. um, I've, I've, I've made that point before. But I think DeSantis represents something else. It's not, I mean, Trump was a Jacksonian revolt against some sort of elite thing. DeSantis is different. And I think this new right is different. We're not, we're not going back to a Reaganite libertarian anything, right? Like yeah. I, holding that as like the foil to Trump is just wrong because it's not happening, right? I think that the difference, if you look at somebody like DeSantis and why he makes less just skin crawl and why in some sense many traditional Republicans are offended by him is that he's perfectly happy in using, using the instruments of the state for political ends, right? Like some, I, again, just to reiterate, I guess what Hazoni, right, who organizes the NACON conference would call fusionism, right? This business that like, yeah, we're going to be socially conservative and not really enforce it. And basically it's just low taxes and small government, right? Like that's, that's gone, right? That is not the future, right? And then, the, you know, the focus isn't on low taxes. It's on the state imposing a certain moral framework that we can all agree on and not letting everything be like an open playing field. Because in that sense, it just gets owned by what is considered to be the, the preponderance of, of the woke institutional left. Right? Uh-huh. And I think if there's anything that characterizes, talk about like, what is the new right? I think, that, you know, it's the new right is actually the class-based movement, right? It's a, it's a revolt of of the center against what it perceives to be an elite. It's a it's a class orientation, and the left is actually kind of more more racially obsessed. It's almost a flippening from what typically characterizes the European left and right. right? But how do we square that with uh, what's happening in Congress, right? So like, DeSantis, look, I agree with you. You know, DeSantis obviously very comfortable. I look, I actually paid a lot of attention to DeSantis before uh, even COVID. Uh, Raihan wrote a great column. Raihan Salam wrote a great column about Ron DeSantis about how he was much more moderate on the environment, for example. He, I think he took some Everglade protection. Uh, one of the most popular things he did uh, before COVID was actually raise teacher pay. He had an initiative where he wanted to raise teacher pay to second in the entire nation. Combine that obviously with CRT. So you could both be against the teachers' unions, but actually pay the teachers really well, which is an interesting political valence. But then, you know, I'm looking at Kevin McCarthy. I'm looking at the very first bill uh, that passes right uh, through the Congress, defund the IRS. Uh, what the actual fights for everybody uh, that I speak to here in Washington of what's going to be brewing in the next two years, it's like there's two parallel universes, like with the National Republican and then obviously Ron DeSantis. And I, I'm just, I don't know yet which one dominates. I tend to go national uh, just because even, you know, to the extent that DeSantis makes the traditional Republican skin crawl. That might be a Twitter phenomenon. But also Ken Griffin wants to bankroll his campaign for $35 million, or $35 million, right? So, I mean, there are a lot of Republican billionaires who are very economically libertarian, from what I can tell, who are very, very comfortable uh, with DeSantis. So what, how would you square that, the state and the national phenomenon? Well, because national and state politics are yeah. totally decoupled. They're different. Yeah. How many Americans know who Kevin McCarthy is? It could actually you know, summarize the past three weeks of congressional politics. What fraction mm-hmm. of them? What yeah, fraction I don't know. know, however, uh, name recognized DeSantis or can think of a video clip in which he's invoked either by the left or the right for having committed some great coup or some great evil, right? Uh-huh. Like national politics just plays at a different level than state, in my opinion. I think it's not necessarily a good thing. I think people tend to be a little bit more irrational and symbolic at the national level. <clears throat> I mean, one of the things if like, you know, in, in the Antonio Caliphate where we have a constitutional convention and rewrite the American constitution, 
one thing we should have is separate the head of government from the head of state, right? People elected Trump. I agree. They wanted this symbolic king thing, which is kind of like the president of Israel. He's a nice guy. He kisses babies. He shakes hands. He meets foreign dignitaries and he does nothing, basically. Maybe tie breaks something in the parliament or something. It's kind of like in the constitutional democracy, or like in Spain, the royal family basically does nothing. But like, if there were another coup, they would kind of embody the state. But then the person who actually makes the trains run on time, so to speak, is like somebody else altogether. Like there isn't that decoupling, unfortunately, in the American system. So they get conflated. And so the and and I mean, maybe it's not crazy, right? Like, frankly, looking out at California, most of the people we have to thank or blame, frankly, for the state of San Francisco behind me are probably right here in the state of California. They're probably not in D.C. And so D.C. to me is a symbolic choice. I'm basically voting for a monarch. And, and, and frankly, a tribal political identity, right? Uh-huh. I can think that I'm enlightened more than those knuckle-dragging Nevadans east of me, and I voted for the, the correct, the morally right candidate, who is, whoever the Democrat is. And so I, I think they're just different. And, and I don't know. I mean, uh, it, I, the counter-argument that they're right, DeSantis' whole spiel at the NACON convention, which was very much a very, you know, he's not a deep dialogue. He didn't mention religion. He's just like, oh, I did this, I did this, yep. I did this, I did this. You can, you can send a kid to a pretty good state college, for $6,000 a year, and we have no state income tax, and we built housing, and I kept law and order, and I kept things open in COVID. That's it. That's my spiel. I'm Ron DeSantis. Thank you very much. And he walks off the stage, right? Yeah. That's a very practical pitch. It's not a, it's definitely not a Trumpian pitch. Maybe it loses against the Trumpian pitch. I don't know. This how good is the Santa's on like, Twitter? <laughs> I'm gonna go check. Not great. Yeah, yeah, not great. Not great. Social yeah. interaction in general is the real, is the real yeah, take yeah. here. There's a pretty straightforward story. I mean, the thing that's interesting though here though too is like, so yeah, definitely... DeSantis is winning the new right right now, but the real take is that it doesn't really matter what the new right thinks. What matters is what the first few like Republican primary states indicate, because we're in this weird position where like not only does the GOP base not care what DC think tank world thinks, uh, it also doesn't care what like, you know, no offense, uh, Newsweek editors who people probably know what I'm talking about. They, they don't care what the Newsweek editors think. Like a joke this whole soccer and my friends make is that you have all these like new right people that go to Ron DeSantis events. You're like, does Ron DeSantis like know who these people are? Do what does this like, does Ron DeSantis like actively follow that kind of like the answer is probably not. So I just like my, you know, my, my, my in-laws are in South Carolina. Um, they're like boat, they're like Trumpy, like, you know, the, who are the boat people, Sagar? Yeah, the boat people parades. just like put yeah, like the, the Trump parade. flags out on their boats. Like that's the type of people they are. They're picking Trump every single time. So like the debate is like, where are those people? Those are the intense voters. Those are the Trump flags. I don't think DeSantis has that yet. Yeah, I don't so know. I mean, best. and that's that's why I also push on the on the predicted thing. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I mean, I just saw a morning console poll just two days ago. Reliably Republican voters is 46 Trump, like 35 DeSantis. Here's another issue. Uh, what are the constituencies up for grab outside of the Trump coalition? Trump, you know, for our, everybody who hates him, actually uh, won the more moderate leaning Republican voters. The reason they lost Iowa is because he lost evangelical and Catholics to Marco Rubio and to Ted Cruz. Right now, Mike Pence is meeting with a lot of these evangelical voters. He's actually going after Ron DeSantis along with uh, Kiersey Nome for DeSantis not signing a 15, or only signing a 15-week abortion ban into law. Evangelicals might be, theoretically, right, one of the only uh, GOP hard constituencies that might break from Trump for an alternative candidate. I think they probably break from Mike Pence. And this actually gets probably also to the ego question, which is, you know, it's fun to do hypothetical matchups, but these people have massive egos. Like uh, Nikki Haley is not going to stand by and let uh, Ron DeSantis just run. Uh, Mike Pence, you know, he thinks he's the inheritor of the Trump Prince legacy, calling for the national abortion ban. He's guaranteed at least 9% um, or so, uh, especially actually a strong advantage in Iowa, not necessarily to win, but in order to draw away from somebody else. And so then you have a muddled field, just like 2016. 
and you're going into Super Tuesday with the greatest idea of the former president, who also has a credible case to a lot of these constituencies of like, I'm the one who got it done. Like, I overturned Roe versus Wade. So I still just see it. Look, anything is possible. He could get indicted, although actually the likelihood of that goes down now because of the whole Joe Biden classified documents case. Um, uh, He could shoot himself in the foot. But I've seen the man come back from a lot. Uh, And I just, I'm not ready to count him out. Not yet. Uh, Sagar Marshall, uh, thought experiment. Let's say you're advising both parties, not not just on this upcoming election, but really just like the next three elections. Like you're you're thinking about what's the future of of, of the GOP and the future of, of the DNC. Um, how are you evaluating the various forks in the road that both parties have, and, and what advice would you would you be dispensing? If you're a Democrat, you really have to lean into what worked for Biden in 2020 and what worked for Biden during the midterms. Which you know, like Saga, we were live on YouTube as this happened, which we got totally wrong. Like Democrats are at their strongest when they're just normal. Lauren Boebert, what's so crazy about Lauren Boebert, like almost like overturning Kevin McCarthy's speaker run, is she barely won her seat. By less than a thousand votes. Like Biden's most intense opposition is not popular. It's not normal. It's weird. There's this whole crew crew and cohort of people who are behaving in their politics like it's 2015 and Brexit is happening and Trump is coming out of nowhere. The vibe of the country, to use like the biggest like internet era cliche, has changed. And Democrats just need to, if they're smart about this, return to that. And I think at its best, when Biden is at his most checked in, he always gets this. He's not on Twitter because Twitter, in the most important way, enforces all of the worst aspects of the Democratic Party. To your point, Eric, Dan, and AGM, it's the most like PMC. It's the most like woke, but not even like woke in the sense that because like there are plenty of like popular things that are woke, but it's like undemocratically woke. It's like there is no consensus on this. If you actually ask most Democrats, I'd say there's probably a huge gap between like peak Twitter Democratic Party taking how actual voters feel. So for Democrats, it's being normal. And if you're if you're if you're a Republican, I think the argument basically comes down to also just like as much as you could move on, I think I think as much as you could focus towards the future and move away from just rehashing 2020 and the crazy stuff, as much as you could remember that the country is looking for normalcy, not upending things, that will help you a lot because it's just crazy watching Carrie Lake. Um, you know, barely giving up. I, I, has she technically conceded, Sagar? I don't know. Has she given up yet? I don't pay attention to her anymore. Yeah. That's the kind of yeah. the take. It's, you know, she started running for Senate. It's just like be normal. I think for both parties, same advice. What about you, Sonny? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think it's the exact same. Both have the same advantage. I mean, with the Republicans, let's not forget, they did win 6% uh, in the national popular vote for the midterm. So where did they lose? They lost in the MAGA Stop the Steal key races. So that's one of the things you want to expunge from the party. Part of the reason why it's so difficult is because Donald Trump is like unique in his ability to make sure and force that to the fore and also bring a lot of voters who care about that into the primary and make them vote accordingly. So that's something that I would try and move on from. And I think also the Democrats have the same issue. I mean, you know, Biden barely won the presidency by 40,000 votes um, in 2020, and specifically because of unchecked cultural left, of which he did his best to push back against. So I think both have a minority of people who have something which has a big hold over a constituency within the base itself and they have to specifically try and either excise move past or strike some sort of deal while trying to appeal to the center it's actually very uh, very basic i think political advice here you know in terms of coalition management and then trying to win over 
the center. This is nothing special. It's just that the task and the execution at hand for both is difficult. I'd probably rather be a Democrat right now than a Republican, given that Trump is there. But in a post-Trump world, I would be worried as hell if I were them. But Sagar, let me ask you a random question, just to throw you a total curveball, because your your composure is is driving me crazy. We have to we have to get you to lose it somehow. Why (laughs) why don't you why why don't political pundits ever jump to the fray? Right? Like why? Like have you ever considered joining campaign and actually taking a side and trying to win it? Like no, because like from the tech perspective, right? Yeah. Like it's it's one thing to pontificate about technology, which we do all the time, by the way, to be clear. But then like at some point you have to like go and create it. So I'm curious. You're never tempted to like dip your toe in, not necessarily running yourself. But just like running somebody's actual political machine or messaging or comms, has well, that temptation ever hit you? It's interesting. Uh, first of all, no, I have no interest. First of all, I don't work well for others. So, you know, and, and that's the other thing. I know what it takes uh, to work for some of these candidates because I'm friends with a lot of the people who do and who work for some of the biggest principles in the United States. And I don't want to be a slave. So I actually have no interest in doing that. You refuse um, to eat a salad with a comb. You're just never oh, going to do man. that. Oh, man. I mean, it's, it. not, okay. it's not, this, that's the easy part uh, compared to <laughs> oh, getting yes. screamed at and uh, waking up at 3 a.m. because so-and-so forgot their suit pants and you have to go deliver <laughs> to the hotel. I can give everybody a whole <laughs> First of all, I have no interest in doing that. Uh, second of all, uh, look, I mean, here's the thing. I'm pretty sure, okay, I, I, honestly, I don't think that I'm cynical enough to do that, at least in the political party or conservative right of what I would want to do. Like, I have no interest in kissing Trump's ass or, you know, you know, vaguely saying that the election was won, but not really going into detail or courting like some bullshit uh, NRA organization by, by buying guns, even if I'm not even into guns. Like, look, if it's authentic, I think it's fine. And I think the best candidates out there who are authentically with this and are selected by the voters accordingly. I'm saying, like, for me, like, no, I don't have any interest in doing that. And, yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. Like, I, I like what I'm doing. But I do think it is an important, I think it's an important point that you make. Like, you're right. Like, look, at the end of the day, the stakes are not that high for me. I've gotten shit wrong all the time. And you do and often have to do monologues where I was like, I was totally wrong. Uh, about this so i mean to the extent i have a constituency i guess it's my audience for being like here's what i think here's what we're trying to make sense or whatever of the world but for actual running in politics you know i asked crystal this too i actually i was like crystal why was she ran for congress that's how she became uh famous that's literally why we even have a show and she was like honestly like a she describes all the coalitional problems that i'm describing here in terms of what it means to be an actual candidate and she's like b if anything sometimes when you're in media and especially have a successful show you actually can have more power over the quote-unquote discourse just because of the way that the internet works and the actual unique incentives that politicians have to court quote-unquote influencers than you would as a backbenching member of Congress. Does that make sense? I don't know. I would just feel incredibly frustrated to not be able to like test my insights in the heat of battle. And I assume like as you know, I guess the three of us were somewhat involved with uh, a, a DC swamp organization called the Lincoln Network. Which yes. I'm not absolutely not paid to plug anymore, but um, but nonetheless, it's kind of interesting. You gave me a taste for that, and it, it's definitely not my thing. But I can tell the people in it kind of love it, right? Yeah. And like they're they're literally creatures of that environment. And as much as people in tech, like here in San Francisco, are as much of tech and like really couldn't do anything else, it just strikes me. Yeah, I don't know. It, and those people always seem to be in the fray in some form or another. There's like the think tank circuit. There's the staffer thing. There's this and that. But um, I don't know. I, yeah. Okay. Well, well, you know, here's the other thing, which is that what you're describing is actually part of the reason why I don't want to do it. Like, there's an entire machine which is built yeah. around politics, which actually has nothing to do with ideology and is more has to do with like having a job and uh, yeah. making the quote 
machinery working. Like, look, I, f- I find that boring as shit. Like, I would much rather do it and do this and meet people like you and, and, and talk to them. Like, that, I think that's the other dirty truth, which is that the vast majority of quote-unquote campaign work is boring, uh, is not innovative. A lot of it is covering your own ass to the extent that it's fun. It's really only fun in, let's say, like five states, which are genuinely competitive. And then in terms of like the big decisions and all that stuff, that are made, I mean, that's really mo- usually in the hands of a few people. And yeah, I mean, Marshall, what do you think? Well, I mean, this is, as I'm hearing you articulate yeah. this, I'm realizing a huge difference between just like big dick VC mindset and just the way DC works. So in so if you're a VC and like a really, so like, for example, Mark Andreessen, Mark Andreessen, he does this because he enjoys it, but he's also expected to be a great investor He's expected to be an operator. Yeah. He's expected to do uh, CNBC hits. He needs to be a podcaster. He needs to be a great writer. He has to do all of these different things at once. And that's kind of like what the gold standard for being like a, a tech VC person on this like Twitter space thing too. Like you, you're just like a perfect generalist. And in, in DC, you're very much taught. I think that everyone, I don't even want to say like a cast, you know, a cast system in the sense of like one is better than the other. But it's very much just like structure. It's like, look, there are some people, these people, and I'm just going to be very frank, let's talk about the Republican Party. When you come to D.C., you're going to meet these guys who are mostly from like southern state schools. They're not particularly intellectual. And they just like run campaigns. And the Republican Party is like their frat. Yeah. Like that is their thing. They wear like croquis and have boat shoes and like have vineyard vines like GOP um, you know, belts, which like coming from Oregon was like insane to see. Like saw where you and I lived with a couple oh, of these I remember, guys. Like, yeah. That's their thing. Um, then <laughs> there are people like Sagar, like Sagar, you are a like a pundit. And in your case, like when Antonio, when you're saying like Sagar, how are you not like jumping in? Like this is your version yeah. of jumping into it. You're actually jumping into it about as aggressively as you can in the sense that you've got a business. You're not basically like relying on like speakers fees or like random foundations that support you. There are people like me who are in this weird space where I'm like a think tank fellow. So like I get into it by like talking to smart people and doing interviews. Then there are like candidates, which kind of take an aspect. Candidates can be pulled from every single category, but they're going to kind of lean more towards like the more outgoing part. So yeah, there's just, DC just isn't set up to reward arch generalists. What will end up happening is everyone will be skeptical of you. No one will take it particularly seriously. Like Sagar could crush it on YouTube but he's never going to get a think tank offer regardless of ideology, just because that, that doesn't really make sense given people's perspective. Yeah, that's a good point. Things are really siloed. And also, uh, look, here's another uh, thing. There's a good part for tech and just for free enterprise. This is not a free enterprise system. A lot of it is bullshit. <laughs> you actually can fail and you can fail upwards. In fact, you can literally run a campaign literally into the ground. And as long as you were right, nice to the right people at the RNC, you will get the same consulting gig for some random ass candidate that's running in like Oklahoma. So- it's a much more like closed, uh, frankly corrupt and stupid system uh, that I just don't find that rewards uh, any like real entrepreneurship ideas or any of this. And look, I mean, look at the data. Like the vast majority of campaigns are not contestable. They're they're very simple. Uh, and like we, we again, like all of us, if anything, there's a bias towards focusing on the ones which are actually contested. Most incumbents win, and then once you once you have incumbency, of course the thing that's going to come at you is a primary thing the the best advice for most members of congress is shut up in both the party line i just i just don't have a lot of interest in that 
But wouldn't well, but Trump be an yeah. example of of the actual opposite of that? Of, he's a fucking of, billionaire. He's a not only oh, is a billionaire. On. He did, it had yeah. nothing to do with his money. It's it's just like he basically rejected all of the core parts of the DC. You know, this is yeah. how you run a campaign. He didn't have real professional staff. I mean, Steve Bannon was running his campaign at some point. Like he basically just kind of he he DDoSed the mainstream media to get a bunch of unearned media attention in a very crowded field, and then then he used Twitter. As essentially just he didn't need to go to the press. He, he could just he could create the news cycle every single day with a tweet from from you know his phone. Yeah, and, I think something with okay. Go ahead, Marsh. Yeah, well, we're just a quick thing on that. And Danny, that's the right. I think that's the right like counter example to what we just said. But a let's let's remember several things. So a like we will never see Trump's like likeness like ever again. Trump, a Trump tried to run for president a bunch of times. It only worked in 2015 for a very specific reason. Like Trump required. Hillary Clinton to be the Democratic Party's nominee, Obama would have smashed him. This is just universally uncontested. Obama would have smashed him. There's a very specific circumstance that mattered. And also Trump had 40 years so that's of mainstream yeah. media, NBC, public, like, you know, uh, Home Alone 2 le- level hits. And that's like the result of a media culture that just no longer exists. So any billionaire who tried to do what Trump did, left, right, or center, it just actually wouldn't work because they wouldn't have grown up in the same like media ecosystem as him. But sorry, that, you were saying. Yeah, that's what I was. What I, when I was like, he's Donald Trump. Like he was one of the most famous people in the United States. Uh, do you guys know what Q score in the is? World. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, honestly, with the world, the Q score is kind of like a thing. It's an old school television term, and it has to do with likability and with a general, I guess, like awareness uh, in the, in the mind of the American consumer. Arguably, more important, the American voter. And Trump had a sky high Q score. But in 2014, he was one of the most like liked, or actually no, 2010. I mean, before birtherism, was one of the most liked individuals. Was one of the most well known. He was like a rap icon. I mean, that level of pop culture uh, awareness, like as Marshall said, that is all part of media monoculture too. Which I don't see any of that coming back. So, and also like what you guys, what you're suggesting, um, Dan, is that a new individual member of Congress could do that. And uh, look. I haven't yet seen, and I've seen a lot of them try. I think Crenshaw's cringe. I think MTG is cringe. I think Lowen Borbord is cringe. All three are individually coded dif- different ideologically, but are all trying to accomplish exactly what you just said. I would say personally, I think all three have failed, at least um, in that regard. Uh, Madison Cawthorn, probably the most famous example, the 26-year-old uh, ran for Congress, only served one term. He literally said, I don't care about legislation. I only care about earned media. He got his ass kicked out of office. But, um, so, yeah, go ahead. AOC, AOC, like master class of, of yeah. using all of these new tools, like, you know, live streaming, like a YouTube live streamer or a Twitch live streamer, like her eating ice cream, talking about how her day through Congress and actually building this direct audience on social media. And and I would say that, like, the, you, to your point about being a YouTuber, I think a YouTuber, like, taking the DC establishment and saying, you can't get a think tank job because you're a YouTuber, like, you're, you're where the puck is headed. Like having the direct distribution, how much more impactful is Joe Rogan on the political process than Meet the Press? Right? Well, like Meet none. the Press is a bunch of people in DC none. watching. Joe, Ro- Joe Rogan has zero impact on the political process. Back beyond that saga. No, yeah. Well, group. that's what I was going to get to. And that that's the dichotomy. It's ruin your and future the, bookings. That's the problem of Washington, I think. Well, look, I mean, I would say Joe Rogan has an immense impact on American popular culture. But the political process doesn't care about American popular culture because it's largely insular 
I actually think Meet the Press is tremendously influential. By the way, I don't want it to be this way. That's why I spend most of my time shit talking. Uh, <laughs> what I'm saying is like, but what I recognize is that a column in the New York Times is going to get picked up by the White House chief of staff or the Senate majority leader or the House speaker, and that that column will then influence the thinking. If anything, it's about media bias in terms of what is, when I say media bias, what I'm saying is the diet, the specific diet of the people in power. Let's say, you know, that uh, I think Murray used the term like narrow elite, like the amount of people that like actually run the country. Within the narrow elite, they don't give a shit about Joe Rogan. I wish, listen, I actually interviewed Joe and I asked him this question. I said, hey, Joe, why do you think more people in the political process don't care, uh, don't uh, care what you think? And he was like, yeah, I don't really know. He's like, it's kind of weird. Um, but I think it gets to the point of when we're living in this media environment where things are cracking up and breaking apart, then you're, you have this strange system where a guy, where, where Chuck Todd, who's a massive failure, literally got canceled and taken off of his own network and runs a shitty streaming platform of which he occasionally gets a Sunday program, which 100,000 people watch. Well, unfortunately, those 100,000 people are quite influential um, in our politics. Same with CNN. You know, CNN Dayside is an abject failure. I, By the way, I beat them every single show that I do. Does that matter in terms of influencing the political process? No. If I did a CNN hit um, in the middle of the day where it was me and it was them and we were like arguing about something, I guarantee you people who are inside the system would be like, holy shit, you did such a great job. Like you made a great point, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, I actually say that every single day and everything, every one of these platforms. I know this to be true because it's happened. You know, the same with Fox, the same as with uh, MSNBC. I don't think I could overstate how important mainstream media is actually to the functioning of our political process. Part of the reason why I spend so much time trying to cleave against it. Okay, so let me let me let me define slightly different yeah. then. So, I hear you on the, the the White House House Chief of Staff is reading the op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, yeah. and the New York Times every day, and and what on CNN or you know Fox is actually going to be in the DC kind of like zeitgeist for that twenty period. But if you tell me what how, how many how many uh, Eric, you probably know this. How many listeners does Rogan have? 50 million? It's 11, 11, it's 11 million, million episodes. 11, 11 million, million people, episode. right? Yeah. 11 million people who are listening to the guy for 100 plus hours a year. And and if you if you then take the whole aggregate number of uh, an increasing number of creators who are independent media, where people have a direct relationship with those you know, people and, and their guests and, and, and kind of like the idea exposure that they're getting, rather than watching you know the ABC Nightly News or 60 Minutes or any, all, all that shit's declining in terms of the average American, over a 10 to 15 year period, it is going to have an impact on culture because yes. the, the, the my my demographic or even younger are just never going to watch 60 minutes. Like it's, it's not like, oh, you turn 40. Okay. Now you watch 60 minutes anymore. You just, you just, the, the, those, those things are dying and it's the independent new media that's being created. That's actually direct to their audience that I think is going to have a sh substantial shift in American culture. And so Joe Rogan's a great example. He, you know, conservative, not really like he had Bernie Sanders on there. He's got kind of quirky views and different topics. So I, I think that that stuff is is upstream. It just takes longer. And I do agree with you. It's like, Joe, what, what happens on a weekly Joe Rogan podcast is not going to affect the yes. White House chief of staff. Yeah. But I do think that, that that is a disruptive power that is going to replace the mindshare of the mainstream media over the next 10 to 15. So this, this is, I, I love the way you're saying this. This is like the perfect way to illustrate it. So so, so several things. Like one, Sagar, you and I talked with the, about this with a very uh, aggressively online uh, VC about this topic. When Kabul was falling, when uh, the Taliban are taking over and the suicide bombing is happening, CNN was there. Because at a core level, 
CNN's business model is fundamentally structured around at its core. So we're not talking Don Lemon being annoying in the morning. We're not talking, you know, like, you know, the uh, New Year's Eve thing. We're talking like people need to know like what is happening. Independent creators at a just deeply structural level are not established and nor frankly, nor were they ever economically be established to actually deliver that sort of reporting. So my take is, Yes, it's true that like the mainstream media is going to like decline in mindshare. They're never going to hit that like 60 million people watching the CBS Evening News. But at the end of the day, like the cable, the streaming, that model provides such a subsidy that it just is essential to the reality here. And independent creators are going to in soccer. This is what you do. Like you don't send a reporter to Kabul. You yeah. take the public access feed of CNN and you play a clip on it. These systems are actually way more integrated than people like to normally actually discuss. And I think the take is, it's not that the independent creators and the people that you're talking about, Dan, don't exist. It's just the mainstream media is moving closer and closer and closer to them and will look much more like them than it looked like its heyday in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But like these are really, one without the other just fundamentally doesn't work. And that's think, the big problem. I think eventually someone can maybe solve that problem. But uh, look, and this is why it's a decade long type thing and also what business models you know we don't have the luxury of being literally subsidized by the cable bundle and that's where all the profit of these companies come from not actually from the viewers it is you know i look i like to dunk on them for the viewers but i wish i had a business where uh, my viewership actually didn't matter and i could still pull a billion in profit because somebody literally pays me to be part of the bundle it sounds nice um that what you're talking about dan is pop culture and actually that's part of why we push back so hard because you said political process and then you changed to political uh, to to pop culture and then how the culture then has an impact on politics and look maybe i'm too cynical but i think you're also thinking a little bit too small d democratic like i honestly just don't think that the way a lot of people think or even have opinions about politics except for one maybe one or two things in a real crisis where somebody actually think and really just has all that much of an impact um on the political process i think that the political process is fundamentally driven by elite concerns by constituencies that are well-represented, that are well-moneyed. And until you see those institutions take form, so take, let's say, a Joe Rogan type, uh, let's let's take vax skepticism uh, to be with them, to push back on the uh, federal vaccine mandate, right? I mean, there's a reason that the only person that really had a real stand-up against that was, I think the Daily Wire sued, and like, let's be honest, like, nobody gave a shit. Right. Like there was no actual lobbying infrastructure campaign mailers, something that had real impact here in D.C. to actually push against that in the court, like a federalist society. And if we're talking about uh, abortion, that's a perfect example of what I'm of what I'm thinking. So how exactly that political movement takes shape, goes forward, gets funded, gets created. I mean, these things take a long, long time. And that's just where a lot of my cynicism comes from. Um, oh, and one other thing to add to it, Sagar, and yeah. this is a key thing, because look, I, I, let's, 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 let's not just be like skeptical like DC people and let's offer some like suggestions for people. So A, like Dan, I think the thing that the real test case to be interesting here is Joe could be more influential if he wanted to. Oh, yeah. So like, he yeah. repeatedly said no to Trump. He said no to multiple Democratic Party campaigns. Charlemagne the God, I think he did really good work during, like Breakfast Club did really good work yes. during the Democratic primary. Kamala Harris, Mayor Pete, a bunch of people like went on. So I, I think that's like a like, interesting model of how you could sort of merge, like wanting to be independent with doing it. So what I, my suggestion for creators who want to do that more is you have to, you have to accept that, well, I mean, sorry, actually, I, here's what I want you to pick up on. 
the other problem too is that the incentives you experience as a creator are actively against what you need to do to be successful in DC. So if you're a creator in the creator space, your instinct is to do things to get you more views, to get you more subs. That isn't always like perfectly aligned yeah. with the way DC works, the way power works. I mean, we had Peter Zion on the realignment. It was a great episode, really enjoyed it. But halfway through the episode, Peter goes, China's going to collapse in 10 years. And I'm like, oh, like, he said Peter, that on Rogan mean, as well. You mean like, yeah. you mean like the CCP is going to collapse? You're not referring like, to no, like 5,000 years ago. He's like, no, it's done. <laughs> yeah. It's like, sorry, dude. Like, A, that's like a ridiculous claim to make. You made that claim in 2009. There's a Forbes article. People could look it up. That process of him taking his DC establishment like credentials and knowledge, applying it, the bigger he gets as a creator, the less useful he gets to the policy process. Because I'm sorry you're not able to walk into DC and drop stuff like that. Yeah. It, speaking, I mean, of, speaking of that, I, I, I follow him on YouTube. His YouTube videos have gone from kind of like just, you know, pretty low budget him recording to yeah. he's now doing the YouTube face that goes for the algorithm. And the most recent, exactly that, that like soy kind of like, <laughs> yeah. And, soy and soy it's, um, the, the, like the one on China, he was like, China's about to collapse. And it's, and you know, kind of like that. So, Listen, man, I got I, no I, I've been a big Zion stand for a while, but like yeah. the, uh, to your point, the creator thing I think is actually starting to like he he realizes what plays is to say the the most right. outrageous thing. You know, Dan, I was thinking about. This. I gotta go in a couple of minutes, but Dan, something I was thinking uh, for just what you said was AOC is actually a good example. When she was at her most powerful for creator is probably when she was least powerful as a legislator, and when she got diminished her creator uh, Instagram and all that, she became more powerful as a legislator. In terms of her seats on the committees, they actually rewarded her for shutting up because they're like, hey, you caused more trouble. You're not going to get shit done. Um, so the process also has its way of dealing with upstarts and always has like, I mean, you can go all the way back to like Huey Long and, you know, Populous or whatever from before that. They know the, the system has a way of its doing. I guess I'll, star, I'll try star to- Trump. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But OK, even with Trump, I mean, he said he wanted to do a lot of things. He only, he only passed one thing through Congress called the Tax Cuts and Jobs miles of Wall Sogger? Yeah, How many exactly. Miles of Wall How many miles of Wall while does that happen? Uh, did our trade deals really get rewritten? Um, I mean, yes, he did change the China consensus. That was through the pre-existing USTR, and it was because he had a decent ambassador. If you look at uh, all a lot of his other policies where he wanted to do anything, I mean, most of well, it was replacement level. Mitt he negotiated NAFTA. Yeah, I mean, okay. And that was through no, TAA. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to stand, stand Trump policy. That was through Robert Lighthizer, yeah. who was somebody who yeah. probably would have worked and actually did work in the Reagan administration. Maybe it wouldn't have happened without Trump. I don't know. Um, but I guess the point is, it's like to the extent that he got a lot of his stuff done, I mean, a, most of it was either with pre existing Reagan and Bush era professionals. And then to the extent that he didn't get the things that he wanted done, it was also because those Reagan Bush professionals didn't agree with what he wanted to do. And so just didn't do it. I mean, look, I have had the unique opportunity of I interviewed Trump. I've interviewed him for over two hours in the Oval Office. Like, he doesn't give a shit about policy at all. He actually really doesn't care. Um, he was more interested in showing me around the Oval Office and showing me the his world WWE belt above his 70-inch TV. like, And that's what gets the man going. And, you know, I think people should know that. Uh, I think that's fine. People can have take their... Take with that what you will. Yeah, take with that what you will. He showed me a room. He called it the Monica Room. He's like, you know, it's like, it's pretty wild. And I was like, holy shit, dude, you're the president. You know, like... Yeah, yeah. Maybe let's uh, maybe let's wrap on that. Uh, yeah, now you got to go. Uh, yes. You guys come I back. Apologize. We'll do a part two. I feel like we didn't properly represent the big dick VC energy in the room. There's a lot of politics, uh, <laughs> cynicism, and uh, we'll do that in a, in a part two sometime. Uh, I would love Sagar that. and Marshall. Thanks so much for coming. On the thanks, podcast. gents. Appreciate right. it.
Awesome. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Marshall, the only thing I would add on your um, cable news thing, and Antonio, you, you have strong opinions on this in terms of the, the reporting, so you, you should share that. But I, I think like one thing that's come out of, you know, first, Osama bin Laden rate, where did it happen? It happened on Twitter. There were no CNN reporters there, right? And then the second thing, I think Ukraine, and, and I'll let Antonio, who's actually been to the war zone, pine here as well, but I think a lot of what we're seeing from Ukraine is open source intelligence, right? It's like people with smartphones uploading and then media and curators, whether it's kind of like a Twitter account dedicated to like war in Ukraine information. And then pundits are like quote tweeting in and adding, adding things there, but that's not CNN on the ground. Like the amount of information coming out of this war relative to, you know, peak CNN is probably like the Gulf. And like, yeah, I think the, um, the amount of information coming out and then drones, another thing, it's like the devastation and what I, I forget which, which city, I think it's Mariupol. Am I, am I saying correctly? Like yeah. just showing the, the, the ruins of the city. And it was from some DJ, DJ, DJI, you know, Chinese drone that you can buy on Amazon. Like, so I, I, I do think it, it is shifting and, and you're always going to have a place for the kind of like embedded reporter in the foreign bureau, like, especially in terms of like sourcing and, and stuff like that. But the raw amount of information I think that is just going to be put online by the fact that you have four or five billion people with smartphones is, is again, like I'm approaching this like a technologist, right? Like I, I, you, yeah. I hear all the DC stuff that you guys are saying, but, but ultimately I'm, I'm looking at through the lens of like, this stuff is changing and television news is irrelevant. Like no one watches uh, live TV other than basically the NFL. And, and I think over time, people's attention is going to go somewhere and it's probably going to be on Instagram and TikTok, which is just going to be chopped up interviews that exist on YouTube. And I think that that's going to grow in influence and will shape the political process. Well, quick thing, Dan, because I want to, because we didn't see it to Eric's where we didn't hit the, what you tech people bring to the table enough here. A, Substack's huge, right? Like there are all these Substacks, they get all these subscribers, but guess what? They're not free anymore. Like there are a bunch of people who used to tweet a lot and now they like, when we have paid Substack, they're very constrained. So like, I, I think the issue here, when you say it's irrelevant, you're basically just talking about scale. And I guess my take is that basically it just doesn't, I just don't think it matters too much that CNN is no, no longer pulling in 20 million viewers. It, 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 so I, I guess what I'm trying to basically get at is how from a tech perspective or a company perspective, like you guys are doing media here, do you solve the issue of, how, how do you solve the saga CNN I'm sorry, the soccer New York Times Wall Street Journal example. Does like, do independent creators just have to get more professional? People have to start wearing suits and ties. That's why soccer wears a suit and tie. Like, how do you guys think about like the problem that he raised? I mean, the, the techies take on it. I mean, and this comes into a little bit like whether you're an institutionalist or an anti-institutionalist. <laughs> Alana Newhouse at Tablet did this thing about brokenism and this sort of distinction, which I also see myself. You talk to people, even a lot of them on the heterodox, whatever, and they're still basically institutionalists, right? And I think the one of the necessary delusions that makes Silicon Valley work is being an anti-institutionalist and think about building new things. You don't, like, I mean, to be blunt, now that I'm not recording, this whole political spiel sounds like a bunch of fucking horseshit to a tech guy. They're like, A, like 90% of the people that he name dropped, nobody here even knows who the fuck they are or even gives a fuck what happened with whatever little drama happened this week in DC. Like, like not even, like you're talking like fucking space alien. Nobody fucking gives a shit. And so it's like, oh, how do I fix the fact that, uh, I don't know, some dipshit that I've never even heard of that I literally had to Google while he was talking about it, listen to some <laughs> stupid little fucking show that all I know is playing in the United Lounge when I walk by. Like, it's not even a problem anybody <laughs> thinks about because no one gives a flying fuck about it. I mean, to be blind. Well, you guys should give a flying fuck about it. I think that's, that's the, so this is good. You're right, but, but that's, the, <laughs> I, I think, I think that's, that's the flaw. You should give a flying fuck 
that Chuck Todd, that during the first few weeks of the uh, Ukraine war, Chuck Todd's couch was where DC came to its consensus on what we were going to do. But, and then but, but, tech started I, I mean, posting they, a lot they, about Ukraine. I so that's my take. The, the Ukraine example is a good one because another theme in that these people, like we've talked about a lot, is like this notion of current things, right? And like virtual elective reality is like an, an abrutum ice sort of way. And does reality yeah. matter anymore? And, and the, case, the Ukraine case is one that I would cite is one where the current thing paradigm breaks down because A, like it wasn't actually so politically polarized. You could say, hey, we don't, we shouldn't support Ukraine and you wouldn't get fired at your tech job, by the way. And then secondly, like it actually is a real thing out there. It's not just some like Twitter reality, like people are actually dying, there's ruined cities. It's like a real thing. And so in the Ukraine case, I think you're right. But part of the reason why Silicon Valley can get away with this so long is says, guess what? Like who's fucking downstream of who here? Who's getting the sloppy seconds on who does what? Like the number of times, like in tech, the number of times you're actually stopped by DC and have to give a fuck about Chuck Todd's couch is basically never, unless you're a senior <laughs> VP, unless you're at Coinbase in which you're actually like butting your head against fucking, you know, the SEC or something, or, you know, senior privacy counsel like Facebook or something. But that, that doesn't even animate the spirit of Silicon Valley anymore. Like nobody gives a shit about it. Put it this way, Chuck Todd thinks way more about Twitter than anybody at Twitter thinks about Chuck Todd. Other than public policy people, and, right? And, I would say real quick, Dan, this is the most someone has ever said. We're not recording, word. so Chuck, Chuck to make noise. This is the most Chuck Todd has ever been mentioned no, in any tech context ever. Okay, yeah, wait, sorry, Dan. Pull, pull. Two guys from my, my from my startup just showed up. Do, do either of you know who Chuck Todd is? They both shook their heads. They don't give a fuck, right? It's like that scene yeah, in that did, movie did, where like Chuck Todd's couch is running <laughs> policy. Do you give a fuck? Nobody gives a fuck. Nobody knows who he is. Marshall, here, here's what I would say on Substack. You know, Mike Solana has the Substack Pirate Wires, right? He he, he kind of has an audience within Silicon Valley. You know, some people are public that they read him. Other people read him privately. But he he's upstream of Elon, right? And Elon controls Twitter. And he's running Twitter like a newspaper was run in the early 20th century, like Hertz and Hearst or Pulse, right? And so yeah. th the media landscape is going to change in the sense that uh, I, I think that there's an interesting thing. There was some congressman with this, this uh, omnibus spending bill right before con uh, Christmas. And he had a uh, tweet storm. And uh, I, I kind of watched how the sausage was made. I, I saw this get shared in a chat group. Someone said, hey, I can send this to Elon. Got sent to Elon. Elon then re, you know, requote tweeted it. And then basically said, uh, hey, John Tester and Cinema, what's the deal here? He like summoned these, these representatives and they had to respond, right? So to your point about like the average congressperson or the White House chief of staff doesn't care about Twitter, well, when Elon with his 120 million followers all of a sudden goes like, hey, this is pretty egregious pork barrel spending, like you need to now make a comment. Those people probably would have had an aide give the New York Times their quote, but they had to respond and maybe the aides writing the response on Twitter. But I do think things are changing. And, and that, that's all I'm trying to say is that like as a technologist, I, I just view these things through, we're having a disruptive change in terms of how consumers, you know, engage with media. And, and not old people. And boomers are like the biggest demographic. I want to use the Zihan thing. Like they're going to continue to watch television. They're going to watch Fox News and CNN and just sit watch TV. But a Gen Zer or, or a millennial ain't watching cable news. They're, they're, they're watching YouTube. They're watching TikTok. They're watching Instagram. And, and so the, the media that gets chopped up for that stuff, I think is, is going to end up having a major shift on, on how the political process works. Yeah. I no, got to jump. I I, we've got a demo. Yeah. So I got to go, go for it. Go for yeah. it. See. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's a, I think you're getting at what I actually do believe here. Cause like you get this urge when you're in these environments to like push back against like extremes you kind of see on Twitter and the actual take is like, I just think there's going to be a healthy in between like both of these processes. 
um, you're you're going to have a media that looks much more like tech, looks to tech much more, and you're also going to see tech that, in very specific cases, cares much more about what DC is up to. I mean, the thing that I'm most interested by is I was telling this with Joe Weisenthal, also Odd Lots podcast. You guys know how like you've always people like Kyla Scanlon, like I really like Kyla. Kyla's really great. Um, TikTok doing content deals, all that stuff. 20 years ago, Kyla wouldn't be on TikTok. She'd be working at Bloomberg as a cub reporter for like 12, 15 years. And then she would get to get her success story. I know people in tech don't like Kara Swisher, but Kara Swisher is interesting. When Kara was like my age, when she was 30, she was writing random books about AOL that no one had ever heard of and working at the Washington Post. So there used to be this system where people were like forced into these institutions and these processes. And that created the like kind of like power levels they kind of have. So what I'm really interested in seeing, and I think Kyla's doing a good job of this, is like, how do independent creators realize like, hey, if I want to have influence, I don't need to be Mr. Beast. I don't need to be Joe Rogan. There's a healthy in-between, like shooting for the CNN hits, but then also, you know, being disruptive, having relevance. So those are the people, if you're like investing in creators, people should be paying attention to because it's like a really healthy medium that people haven't really figured out yet. Yeah, Ben Thompson writes a ton about this, about like the internet is like find your thousand fans with a newsletter going back to the Substack thing and you can actually now make a living and, and you don't, you're not beholden to the 15-year tenure process of a traditional media organization. And, and, and so I, I think that will change the political process. And so to go all the way back is like, yeah, Rogan, Rogan relative to the day-to-day and even maybe the electoral process that we have right now, sure. And, and, and to your point, he probably could do more if he wanted to be more explicit, but, but that's probably not what his goal is. But I do think you're going to see Rogan level creators having significant influence over the effectively the media for these candidates in the next few election cycles because the, the traditional mainstream broadcast media, maybe a little that's less right. the op-ed of the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, because to me, that's just a fancy subsack. I think that will... <laughs> um, that will actually have a, a pretty big impact because I don't think the 60 minutes interview relative to pick your biggest YouTube creator who does interviews. I mean, hell, within the next eight years, if he keeps doing it, Lex Friedman could be, you know, as big as Charlie Rose ever was or even bigger, right? And and so, like, what, what as a presidential candidate, do you want to be on Lex or do you want to be on whatever the traditional uh, broadcast media interview that you would go after? So. Do you have the sexy, the unsexy, the deeply unsexy take is that A, they'll do both? And the, but okay, sure. this is really good because you're, no, you're you're actually getting at it because you know there's the whole white cliche like when JFK got on TV, it changed the nature of politics. Yeah. The existence of Lex means that like a successful politician, if they're Republican, they'll ignore Charlie Rose, right? Because they don't need Charlie Rose's big hands. So they they will <laughs> they will ignore Charlie Rose 2.0 unless handsy Charlie Rose will be will will, will rise from the ashes. They will uh, the, the the Republican will ignore him. There's a big article. Ron DeSantis is ignoring the press. He will go on Lex, but on the Democratic side, a successful Democrat will go on Lex and do Charlie Rose. And that's what the standard will be. Like, it's just how performance changes. It's like with athletes. Sure. And I actually think to your point about that article on DeSantis, our, our friend uh, Balaji has been on this, you know, go direct, don't go through traditional media outlets. And it would be interesting to see if, if the, the shift, especially if DeSantis is kind of in the prime time and if he ends up winning the election, so you have him for four or eight years. If the shift on the Republican side is Republicans don't go to mainstream media, they go to the the kind of long tail of creators, subsects, whatever, podcasts, um, which traditionally, look, Republicans also love talk radio, right? It's like Rush Limbaugh, like all, all that, that stuff. 
but but and then the the mainstream prestige press is basically just an outlet which you could make an argument that it is today but but it just is more formalized the sense that you know mayor pete is is not going on whatever podcast but he's going to have his uh you know primary interview with the editorial board of the new york times that actually no most voters don't give you know two two shits about so I think that's a. I think that's the most accurate like picture what the next ten years look like. I've, I've heard on the podcast today. I, I think that's. I endorse that. Cool. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, I think it's a great yeah. place to wrap. I do love how uh, Antonio's uh, flipping out. He thought it wasn't recorded. It was recorded. It's going to make the final uh, cut. It's, it's the best part of his performance. Um, and also, I just want to say that um, you know, moment of Zed is not only going to move markets. We're going to move candidates. And Chuck, <laughs> Chuck Todd better better recognize. <laughs> better put some respect on our name. You're going to need 50 more viewers and you're already eclipsing. So you're really making that. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much, Marshall. All right. Bye. Take care. Adios. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something like this sort of mission or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for a lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.